Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for opportunity this morning to gather together as your people. God, we thank you that we can come and sing unto you, sing truth unto you. And God, we thank you that we can open up your word together and study truth. We pray for your Holy Spirit that he would guide us in all truth this morning, that he would teach us. Father, help us. Give us ears that would hear, hearts and wills that would obey. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are all in the world, and many of us have come to find the world teaches something quite different than what we learn on a Sunday morning here. The world teaches us to focus on self. And they come up with a whole lot of different phrases like, you do you. Heard that one before? How about, do what makes you happy? Do what feels best. Take care of number one, numero uno. Love yourself. Follow your heart. If you have peace with it, do it. And on and on and on, the world tells us to focus on self. But for us who have received God's love, who have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, we have been given new hearts. And the object of our love is no longer ourselves. The object of our love is God himself. This morning, I have titled the sermon, Beloved, Beware. And that should perk up your ears a little bit. Beloved, beware. If you would, we're going to continue uh, our study through 1 John. If you would open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. This morning, we'll be reading from verses 12 through 17. Once you find 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, you would rise to your feet if you are able this morning to honor the public reading of God's word. First John, chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So reads God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please be seated, church. If you are joining us again through the study of First John, you have been here over and over again. You have heard that John's purpose for penning this letter is that his hearers, that believers would know that they have assurance of salvation in Christ Jesus. And this morning, we will see that he starts off writing about who we are in Christ. But then he gives an imperative, a do not. He gives a warning to the beloved. And so this morning, as we look to this, I see two points broken down here. And before you're like, yes, only two points this morning, let me warn you that each of those points have three subpoints each. <laughs> so we're not going anywhere anytime soon. But the first thing he breaks down is in the Lord. We'll see what we are in the Lord and who we are in the Lord. And then he's going to warn about what's in the world. And so we're going to break down those two different points this morning. But in verses 12 through 14, he begins by describing 
Christians and all that Christians are. They are indicatives of who we are in Christ. He he writes in in a stylistic way and he says, I am writing. And he also says, I write or I have written. He's focusing on the message, saying this is the same message. This is who you are in Christ. But as we read through it this morning, you might be thinking, what about these different groups that he is addressing? He spoke to little children or children. He spoke to fathers and he spoke to young men. And I can tell you after doing much research and studying this, I have no idea what he's talking about. Because some will say, well, he might be speaking to those who are at a different stage of maturity. But as we look to this and we see what he's writing about, we will see that everything he says to each one of these, whether it's fathers or young men or children, he's describing who the believer is in Christ. And so as we look to this, we say, well, Little children is a term he uses often, seven times in this letter. One of his favorite terms for referring to believers is little children. Understanding that the Apostle John is advanced in years. And so it's a term of endearment for the believers, little children or children. Some would say maybe he's addressing fathers as maybe those who are older in the faith. And that's why he tells them, all you need to worry about at this point is that you know him who is from the beginning. And then when he addresses young men, maybe that's those who are younger. And when I say younger, I'm talking about age-wise. And he addresses them as having strength in the Lord, about overcoming the evil one, because they have days that remain that they will encounter continual spiritual attack. But as we put all these together, because we don't know, we're not inside the apostle. John's head of why he addresses fathers, young men, and children. Let's take an aerial view of what he is saying. He is assuring his hearers who are in Christ. He is reminding them of who they are in Jesus. He's reminding them of all the riches that they share in Christ. And he writes all of these indicatives of who they are in Christ, 12 through 14, before he ever gets the imperative in verse 15. That's usually the model we see throughout the New Testament of who you are in Christ before what you're supposed to do in Christ. So the first thing we see in the Lord is we have received forgiveness of sins. Look again at verse 12 with me. John writes, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You know, the the message of the gospel, as Chris declared to us this morning, is that there is forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why? Because there's forgiveness of sins in the gospel of Jesus Christ. John writes, your sins are forgiven. The verb he uses here is a perfect passive. It means the believer's sins, that they have been once and for all forgiven, and they'll never be brought up again by God. Some theologians refer to this as forensic forgiveness. means that upon Christ's finished work on the cross, we are now found not guilty before God. For past, present, and future sins. Beloved, can we get a hallelujah? (laughs) Jesus himself spoke about proclaiming the gospel. We heard it in our reading this morning in Luke chapter 24. Jesus said that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. That we're to proclaim that there is forgiveness in the name of Jesus. And from Jesus' words then go forth the disciples. And Peter would declare the same thing on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 verse 38. He would say, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Peter again in Acts 10, 43, preaches and says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. John starts by these indicatives and says, your sins are forgiven. That was summed up in the gospel. And he goes on to say why they were forgiven. He says, for his name's sake. When he says his, he's referring to Jesus. That your sins are forgiven for Jesus' namesake. He reminds us that we are not forgiven because of anything good or worthy in us. It's nothing that we have done on our part. We are forgiven for the praise of his glorious grace. We are forgiven so that the matchless name of Jesus might be praised and exalted. And since forgiveness of sins was for Jesus' name's sake, we can rest assured that it is complete and that we cannot lose it. It is by him, through him, and it's for him. Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, that is, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of his glorious person, for the sake of his honorable offices, for the sake of his blood shedding and atoning death, for the sake of his glorious resurrection, for the sake of his perpetual intercession before the throne of God, your sins are not forgiven because of anything you are or hope to be, nor because of anything that you have done or have suffered. You are forgiven for Christ's namesake, and all the saints of God can say the same. This is a sure ground of hope. There is no quicksand, but a solid rock is under our foot. If the pardon had been granted for our own work's sake, it might have been reversed upon our disobedience. But since sin is pardoned for Christ's sake, the pardon is irreversible since there is no change in Christ, end quote. Oh, could we just sit under a little bit of Spurgeon? Wow, so good. John starts by saying, beloved, your sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. Start there. He then continues. In the second point he wants to make in the Lord, he says that you know the Father, that it's through the finished work of Christ that we know the Father. Not just know about him, but have fellowship with him. We've already studied in this letter of John to walk in the light is to have fellowship with God. And I want you to think about that, to have God as Father. So often we can say that and we even pray, Father, but to slow down and think, what does that mean? The Bible says that we have been chosen and that we have been adopted by God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We've been chosen, elected, adopted by God. And then Paul would go on later and argue in, in Romans and in Galatians. And in Romans 8.15, he says, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6, he says something similar. Because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He is Father. He is not a God who is far off. He is a God who is near. Jesus would teach his disciples and they said, teach us to pray. He started by saying in Matthew 6, 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That we can now come before the Father because through Christ we know the Father Another great quote from, from J.R. Packer in, in Knowing God. He writes this, quote, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, 
Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God the Father, end quote. So what do you think of when you think of being able to call God Father? What ideas and, and thoughts run through your mind? I mean, do you, do you think about the intimacy that we have with God, who is our Father? That as believers, that we are children of God. Again, that he's not some far-off God that just put us here and, and, and let us to be alone. But he is a God who is near. He is Father. You know, some of us would say, well... You don't know my earthly father. I don't get much comfort in thinking of God as father. We need to understand God is perfect. He is holy. And he absolutely loves his children. And we get to call him father. And as father, he is patient. And he is merciful. And he is forgiving. This is our father. He is near to his children. He cares for us. He comforts us. He strengthens us. He loves us. This is our father. And we know him as John writes here because we know Jesus who was from the beginning. John pointing back to the beginning of his letter of 1 John, speaking of Jesus who came in the flesh, the God-man, fully God and fully human. That it's through Jesus and his substitutionary, substitutionary death that we know the Father. So John begins here by saying, Beloved, your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. He continues in this opening in verses 12 through 14, and he speaks of that in the Lord, we overcome the evil one. And if you look down, you see in that passage, you'll see a couple times he, he uses the same words. He talks about strength two times. He talks about God's word abiding in believers two times. And he talks about victory or overcoming the evil one twice if you slow down and you just meditate upon those and you look at that passage, we see that strength comes from God's word being empowered in believers, which gives them victory over the powers of the enemy. You say, well, how does that work out? What does that look like? The first thing as he unpacks this point here is that we need to understand the believer is no longer under the power of Satan. We as believers have been freed from the bondage of sin and the tyranny of the enemy of our souls. And it's not because of anything that we bring to the table, but because Jesus himself conquered sin and death. Would you flip over with me to chapter 5 of 1 John? If you're in 1 John, flip over to chapter 5 real quick. John unpacks this point throughout this letter. We're going to trace it a little bit backwards this morning. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. John writes, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, we've got to keep this in mind as, as John argues, because he's going to get into this imperative of do not love the world. Throughout this letter, he's going to speak of who is in the world. And who is controlling these things. And he speaks of the evil one. If you backtrack to chapter 4, go back a little bit, chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is greater, or for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's saying, do not fear. That Christ in you, the one who has overcome, is greater than the one who is in the world. 
And then in chapter 5, he will argue again that it's those who have faith in Christ who overcome. Look at chapter 5 again, verse 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Beloved, that is all of us who have repented and trusted in Christ. That we are now overcomers in Christ. Because it was Jesus himself who said, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. John in his letter as I said, he continues throughout these chapters unpacking this idea. If you look at chapter 3, he says in 1 John chapter 3, the end of verse 8, he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We're no longer in bondage to the enemy. We are freed in Christ. Paul would write in Colossians that when Christ went to the cross, he nailed upon that cross. He, all of our sins, it was all canceled upon the cross. And he says, by doing that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And some of you might say, well, this is interesting because shouldn't that mean we're free and we're free from all temptation? We're free from all spiritual attack? Beloved, what's the answer to that? No. If you are in Christ here this morning, you know that spiritual warfare is real. You know there is a constant battle. It is daily. Some of us might say it's moment by moment. It's in every one of us. But the believer overcomes the devil because Christ has overcome. Where is our strength? Is it in ourselves? If you were here through the study of Ephesians, you know the close of Ephesians tells us that our strength is in the Lord. The Lord who has overcome. We read that, or we read that, we studied it in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What does that mean? It means there's a battle going on. It means it hasn't stopped. It means that it's constant, it keeps coming at us, and the temptations will come before us often to give in, to follow the prince of the power of the air, to follow his ways, to follow the world. John starts here in our text this morning before he gets to any imperative, and he says, listen of who you are in Christ. He says, beloved, your sins are forgiven. He says, beloved, you know the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And as such, you have overcome the evil one. He says, these are the riches, the fullness that you have in Christ. And to all who repent and believe, this fullness is theirs. So John goes from these indicatives of who we are in Christ, and he moves ahead he goes from affirmation to exhortation, and you'll see it in verse 15. This is now the second point in the world. We know who we are in Christ, but we're still in the world. So now, taking our identity in Christ and applying that to what John says next. Look at your Bibles in verse 15. Actually, I'll read the whole rest of it through verse 17. John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The first thing we see in 
as this imperative starts, is that there is a love that God hates. It's the first thing we see here. In this letter of 1 John, the word love or its derivatives are used 51 times. And all those are used in a positive sense except for one time. Guess where? Right here. Verse 15. We see this imperative. It's a strong imperative in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Remember, he's already unpacked. Your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. And because you also know the Son, you have victory over the world. Therefore, do not love the world. As we go through these, you'll see clearly in our own lives how that creeps up so often in us. A desire for the things of this world. John says, do not love the world, or the things of the world. What is he speaking of when he says, do not love the world? He's not speaking of the physical world that God created and said it's very good. He's speaking of the world that lives in rebellion to God, to God's rule, to God's will. He's speaking of the world that does not know God. Again, in 1 John, if you look at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. This is the world that he's speaking of. The world that does not know God. The world that does not submit to God. The world that does its own thing, its own way, and not God's way. We read in 1 John verse 13 of chapter 3. John goes on in chapter 3 verse 13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Why? Because we're not going along with the ideologies of the world. We're not doing what the world says. We're doing what God says by his grace. We're following him. In John chapter 15 verse 19, Jesus says these words, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Beloved, do you feel that pressure from the world around you? That when you don't go swimming upstream the same way they're going, that they despise you. They don't like you. They don't like that you're different. They don't like that light exposes darkness. The world that John is speaking of here is the world that is completely contrary to God's design and desires. It is a world that is centered on man's philosophies. It's centered on worldly wisdom. It points to man as the authority and the source of all wisdom. John Calvin quotes on this and says this, quote, By the world, understand everything connected with the present life, apart from the kingdom of God and the hope of eternal life. So he includes in it corruptions of every kind and the abyss of all evils. In the world are pleasures, delights, and all those allurements by which man is captivated so as to withdraw himself from God, end quote. Let me think about it. The enemy of our soul is crafty. And so he puts enticements before us to lure us away from being fixed upon God. And this is a constant battle. But scripture says we have been rescued from the world. That before we repented and believed in Christ, Ephesians 2 Verses 2 and 3 describes us this way, that we were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those of you familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 starts with, but... But God, 
Though we were headed the other way, in his love, he rescued us and made us alive in Jesus Christ. Giving us the fullness, the full inheritance of all that is Christ, he gives to his children. John warns in our text this morning in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. He gives a conditional statement. And he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John declares that a love of the world and a love of the Father are mutually exclusive. That they can't exist side by side. You cannot love the world and the things of the world and love God. I love the way Thomas Brooks quoted this. He said, Thomas Brooks said, quote, The two poles could sooner meet than the love of Christ and the love of the world, end quote. You can't do both. We can't love the things of the world. James would be so direct in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, and says, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And he argues anyone who desires or wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A love of the world is a love that God hates. Why? Because it, it, we can sum it up in a word called worldliness. It, it is a term that defines having a love for this fallen world. It, it's loving the values of this world. It, it's pursuing this world that is directly in opposition to God's will. This world stands on ideologies that are contrary to the teachings of Scripture. It, it promotes a religion of self or selfism. It all points to me. This world is about self-gratification, self-exaltation. The world promotes all of these enticing doctrines that focus on self. The natural man, the natural person gravitates towards these things. Self-promotion, self-gratification, self-love. Is it any wonder that these are all directly in opposition to Christ's teachings? This is what the world teaches Jesus says just the opposite. He says, if you desire to come after me, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. The exact opposite of what the world is teaching. The world says, no, 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 focus more on you. You give yourself more. Do more for yourself. Get more for yourself. Think about yourself more. Treat yourself. Love yourself more. Isn't that what we live in? I mean, I'm not encouraging you to turn on the TV, but if you did, you'd hear a lot of that. Because that's the ideology of the day. And by the way, it's not just the day. It's the whole fallen world that we've lived in. From the fall in the garden, it's been the same way. Worldliness can creep even into the beloved's life. It is very subtle the way it creeps in. And so it's always wise to self-examine, is worldliness creeping in to my life? And like one author proposed some questions that Christians can ask themselves to see if we've succumbed to worldliness. First question, does outward prosperity appeal to you more than growth in godliness? Second question, do you esteem and crave the approval of those around you? Third question, do you go to great lengths to avoid looking foolish or being rejected for your Christian faith? Fourth question, do you consider present and material results more important than eternal reward? And lastly, have you departed from God and adopted idols instead? Anything we would pursue more, love more than God becomes an idol. Anything we think we can't live without has become an idol. And so self-examination. And this is why we're instructed over and over again as the beloved, as Paul would write in Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? Because there's all these enticements. There's all of these things trying to lure us to chase after those. 
And so John says, do not love the world. Beloved, do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not display a love that God hates. And he goes on to argue this as in the world, there are carnal cravings. Look again at 1 John chapter 2 in our text this morning, verse 16. John writes, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Sometimes these are referred to as the unholy trinity of temptations. John lists them as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. These three temptations. Some have summarized that in the very beginning when Eve was tempted, that we see these all there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. We read, Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a lust of the flesh, and delight to look at a lust of the eyes, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, the pride of life. Some commentators point there to say, the devil's schemes are the same from the beginning as they are now. He constantly tries to lure us away from having our eyes on God and to put them on things of the world. You can think of even when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. The Bible tells us he was 40 days without food and that he was hungry. And so the first temptation was to turn stone into bread, enticing his flesh. The second was, he was shown all the kingdoms of the world, trying to entice his eyes. And lastly, it was prove that you're the son of God and leap off the topest, tallest pinnacle of the temple, enticing his or attacking his pride, seeing if he'll respond. And so these three, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, they are the natural fallen sinful desires. You know, God would speak to Cain 4-7, and said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. I point that up to say this, sin is always crouching at the door. Temptation is always around. There's always opportunity to take our eyes off of the Lord and the riches that we have in Christ and put it on the things around us and the world around us. Sadly, the natural man, the one who has not repented and trusted in Christ, is constantly given over to these temptations, the desires of the flesh. This word desire, it, it has a morally negative connotation. It, it's saying the soul is not satisfied with the goodness of God, and it seeks other pleasures in hopes to be satisfied. It's a craving for physical pleasure. Sinful bodily cravings. It's a life that is dominated by the senses. It's the, if it feels good, do it. Attitude. And though sexual sin definitely fits that category, it is not isolated to sexual sin. Even in activities that are not forbidden, it's a type of sin that shows itself in overindulgence. It's where there's a lack of self-control in giving the body all that it craves. And John lists the desires of the eyes. Again, the soul that is not satisfied in Christ seeks pleasure in everything it sees and it delights in it wants. It covets what others have. Perhaps it wants a bigger house. It, it thinks that that will bring satisfaction. Or perhaps it sees a, a more luxurious car and thinks that will bring satisfaction. It may find itself as given over to pornography and constantly lusting at those it sees. Everything it sees that it delights in, it wants. It continues to add to the wish list wants and wants and wants. It's Edmund's response to seeing Turkish delight in Chronicles of Narnia. It's Gollum's response to seeing the ring or my precious in the Lord of the Rings. Those are the visuals and we can see them in others. But oh, it's so hard to see it in ourselves. John lays it out before us. It says, 
do not love the things of the world and know that it comes at you in threefold. It is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, but it's also through the pride of life. The pride of life It's self-dependence, self-glorification. It boasts in the things that you have or the things that you do. It's about prestige, power, position, possessions. It's about status. You know, perhaps that new title at that job will give me a little more status, and that's why I pursue it. Perhaps it's the location or the size of the house that I want that will communicate a certain success or achievement. The pride of life is about storing up as much as we can while we're here on earth. Jesus would warn in Mark chapter 8, verse 36 and 37, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? How do we get seduced into looking at all these things? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It's simple. The world around us promotes this ideology of just follow your heart. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you got a warning about that. The world says, just follow your heart. Do as your heart leads you. And it's interesting that following your heart is exactly the opposite of what Scripture tells us. Jesus says this in Mark 7, 20-23. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. Stop there. So who are we going to listen to? Jesus, who is the God man. Or are we going to listen to human wisdom around us? That says, just follow your heart. Well, if you do, Jesus says, this is what comes out. All of this filth, all of this evil. The Bible would speak of the heart in that manner. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, no wonder the world says, follow that. It's a road to destruction. And we're constantly encouraged to do it. Just follow your heart. John writes verses 12 through 14 before he ever gets down to 15 through 17. To remind you of who you are, that you who believe are the beloved. And as the beloved, you will still at times struggle with these same temptations. But we can rest in the fact that we have been given a new heart. A heart that loves God and a heart that desires to please God. And now we have Christ as our source of strength that we're no longer given over to these temptations. Do you know as the beloved, when we sin, it's not because we had to, but because we chose to. But we don't have to anymore. We've been given all that we need for life and godliness. We've been given the fullness that is in Christ to enjoy. And though carnal cravings may tempt us, our strength and our joy is in Christ. The last thing we see in this text this morning in verse 17 is that in the world, there is short-sighted living. There's short-sighted living. Look at verse 17, 1 John chapter 2. John writes, in the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, the world teaches that it's about the here and now. You know, today, gone tomorrow. And and they get some of it right. Life is like a vapor. But they focus and they get it wrong that it's all about the here and now. Get as much as you can. Live it up now. John says just the opposite. This world is passing away. We read this in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, that all flesh is grass 
and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Do you know that in Christ we have his word that is eternal? It does not change. And in Christ, we have an inheritance that Peter would describe in 1 Peter, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that is kept in heaven for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, you can write down, look at the whole passage later, verses 3 through 5. Jesus spoke many comforting words to those who believe in him. He said, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. John 6, 40. That we would have eternal life. That is a lot longer than the short span of time that some are pursuing now to live it up, to do as much as we can in this little span. But for those who are living for the here and now, who love the world and the things of the world. The Bible warns that Jesus is coming back to judge the world. We read a sobering part in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 8, that he is coming in flaming fire, afflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed." We read here that for the believer, for the beloved, we're excited for the return of Christ. We look forward to our Savior coming back. We look forward to him making all things new. But for those who think it's just about today, there is no future. There is no eternity. Even for them, we read there is an eternity. It's an eternity of destruction. John argues in this letter that we as the beloved, those who have repented and trusted in Christ, that though we are in the world, the world should not be in us. Worldliness should not be part of our lives. Thomas Watson puts it in an idea of a ship. He says, water is useful for the sailing of a ship, but there is great danger when the water gets into the ship. It's just like the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. The believer's love, the believer's affection, the believer's devotion is for Christ. But those who are in darkness, they love the world and the things of the world. They have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The Bible is clear. You cannot love the world and love God. Jesus, speaking of money, puts it this way in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew 6, 24, just right before that, he talked about where we're supposed to be storing up our treasures. In Matthew 6, 19 through 20, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. John's encouragement as he writes this letter and says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. It's him saying, Beloved, keep your eyes fixed on the beauty and the glory of Christ. Keep your eyes. Beware of the lure of the world. The Puritan William Jenkins said this, quote, To forsake Christ for the world is to leave a treasure for a trifle, eternity for a moment, reality for a shadow, end quote. I want to bring this all to a head. In Colossians chapter 4, as the Apostle Paul is concluding his letter to the believers in Colossae, he addresses 10 different believers by name. These believers that he had collaborated with, that had been helpful to him in ministry. And one of them mentioned by name was a man named Demas. And then later on, late in 
the Apostle Paul's life, as he writes the second letter to Timothy, he mentions this man again. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, listen. He mentions Demas, and he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. What happened? What happened to Demas? He started off well. He, he was co-laboring with Paul. He was effective and fruitful in laboring in the gospel. But his eyes were lured off of the beauty and the treasure of Christ and onto the world. This is what John writes to us. Beloved, beware. It's no wonder if in 1 John, he ends that letter in a very strange way, but it makes sense. He ends this letter of 1 John in chapter 5, and he says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why? Because we can so quickly get our eyes off of Christ. We can so quickly get our eyes off the goodness and the treasures of Christ. And so John writes, beloved, beware, keep your eyes on Jesus. And though written over a hundred years ago, these words, these lyrics transcend time. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you on behalf of your children here, those who you have drawn and gifted repentance and faith in Christ, those who you have chosen and adopted to be your children. We collectively thank you that we call you Father, that you are a God who is near and that you give us all the riches that are in your Son. Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed upon the beauty and glory of Christ. Father, help us to cling to Christ, to draw upon his strength as the enticements of the world around us come at us from every angle. Oh God, we thank you for the freedom that we have, that we are no longer in bondage to those things, but we are now in Christ. Father, help us to live a life that is pleasing to you. Help us demonstrate a love for you and not a love for this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.